Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. So my guests today are uh, Professor Brian Ballin, who is Professor of Neuroscience and Neuropathology at Philadelphia College of uh, Osteopathic Medicine, Professor Charles Stratton, who is Associate Professor of Pathology, Microbiology, Immunology and Medicine at Vanderbilt University, and Nikki Schultek, who is the the founder and the uh, founder of the Indocell Research Group. Welcome all. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So Charles, uh, I want to start with you. So you had a review article in 2016, a review of the multiple sclerosis as an infectious syndrome. You say MS is a chronic uh, neuroinflammatory disease of the uh, central nervous system that's generally considered to be an autoimmune myelitis of unknown etiology. And epidemiological studies suggest that infection may act as a trigger on predisposing genetic background. Um, I remember, Charles, um, I wasn't a scientist, but I remember being at Pfizer in the 90s. Pfizer was very much into the CNS uh, channel, and um, there were a lot of, you know, sort of conflicting hypotheses around all sorts of neurodegenerative diseases. but um, autoimmune was sort of the maybe a compete, maybe a dominant hypothesis, perhaps in the '90s, um, and then we found inflammation, and then for a while, I don't know a lot about this, Charles, so I'm just making some statements. You can correct me, and then inflammation. People worried about inflammation of the brain for a while. Um, now, are we finding that all these are sort of symptomatic? that there is something more fundamental that's happening in the brain? So, it's true that people have hypothesized that infections might trigger 
a autoimmune process by exposing some antigens and then the immune system takes over and tries to attack those antigens. And if that were the case, one would predict that corticosteroids would smooth that out or at least make people better. And they don't. But in contrast, we have found that treating the chlamydia pneumonia in patients, and we started to do a formal clinical trial, but we couldn't get people to enroll. We did get five people. We published that, but we couldn't get people to enroll because they didn't want to stop other therapies that they were using. They wanted to be sure that they were doing something right, and they didn't want to just put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. But so we have had patients that were, I won't say they've come out of wheelchairs, but we had one woman in Hawaii who had MS and she had her home on the water and she could get around by holding on to furniture and she would swim every day to give her muscles some workout and we started treating her and then we lost touch with her and this is years later one of my colleagues ran into her at a wedding in North Carolina, and she was dancing. This is a woman who had to get through her own home by holding on to countertops and furniture to make her way down to the beach so she could swim for exercise. There's, a, there's another situation. Uh, this, this hypothesis was first entertained by a physician in Vietnam, French physician in Vietnam, and he was treating people at the time with a combination of a derivative of minocycline. So it was a early minocycline, and he also used hot baths. And one of the women who had MS and was treated by him was in the United States decades later, and she was perfectly fine. Now, people will say, well, yes, people can, re can recover. You know, they, they don't always continue to go downhill. And again, two anecdotal cases don't mean data, but still, we, we have seen people respond to treatment of chlamydia pneumoniae. So, so I want to come back to that. Um, but but uh, your papers, uh, Brian, I want to go to you. Um, so if I understand this correctly, there, there is sort of a, an overarching hypothesis here, which is it's infections that is sort of setting off the process. Um, so, so we have Alzheimer's, um, well-known disease state, 
well, I don't know if that's the right term, right? Um, maybe disease state is not the right, dementia might be the right disease state, but Alzheimer's is sort of a, an overarching construct. And uh, as we all age, we all get there. Um, but the, the overarching idea here is that infections is sort of triggering it. Is that the idea? Yes, in fact, it, we do believe that, that infection, and, and it may be multiple infections, it could be an individual infection, it could run the gamut of a, a, a direct infection in the brain, it may be also associated with indirect infections in the body that can stimulate inflammatory responses. But what we've been studying with chlamydia pneumoniae is really a direct infection of the brain. And typically, this is a respiratory chlamydia organism that's inhaled, and we believe that it has two mechanisms that it can use to get into the brain. One is through the nasal olfactory neuroepithelial cell, our sense of smell, bypassing the blood-brain barrier, going directly into the enterotic hippocampus of our brains, where the disease, Alzheimer's disease, has been characterized to start. That's why we think this is such an important issue here as a primary direct triggering agent for starting the disease. The other way the organism can work is that we're inhaling it also into our lungs. And with surveillance of the white uh, blood cells in the vasculature in our lungs, white blood cells can actually pick this up. And now the white blood cells are infected. White blood cells are not efficient killers of this organism and they will circulate it around the body. And now you can have systemic issues that survive, like atherosclerosis being generated, uh, potentially cutaneous cell lymphoma, uh, other lung diseases. Uh, so, you, so you may have other problems, but if it gets into the bloodstream this way and is carried this way, now you have the potential for the white blood cells to also traffic organisms into the brain through the blood-brain barrier. And now this coincides with the data that others have actually found too, that you do have insult through all and you have insult through the blood-brain barrier. Some type of mechanism is how focused on thinking that this organism now is creating a scenario in brain, brain individuals where at least inflammation, pro-inflammatory responses, direct cellular infections of neurons, of, of astroglia, microglia, of the endothelial cells, leading to your pathology, which our, our animal models have actually shown that you can generate beta amyloid production with this infection through the intranasal delivery process, and they, the amyloid starts to accumulate in the brain tissues. Well. This goes to that amyloid hypothesis that so many people have focused on, but have hand-waved in late-onset Alzheimer's disease, in sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Why is that amyloid there? Why is it accumulating? And, and typically, uh, most people will hand-wave that and say, well, it's due to aging of the cells. It's due to breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. It's inflammation. But why is it that? And now we have something that can actually trigger it. Yeah. So I guess our hunt for Alzheimer's um, cure, so to speak, have been all symptomatic. Um, is, is that a fair statement? 
yes, it, it, it has been. It's, most of it's been based on trying to eradicate the pathology, which uh, has it has a level of insight that, yes, it's this pathology that's developing. If you get the bad material out of the brain, we would think that would be good. But that actually doesn't work. Now, now, this goes to the latest issue with Aduhelm and the drugs that are being approved through the FDA of these anti-amyloid approaches. And it, it has been shown for a long period of time. Other companies have these other drugs that have shown that. But the data has been, been now evaluated. You can take amyloid out of human brains, and it does not change cognition. And to approve a drug based on the biological activity that you can take amyloid and remove it from brain tissue, hopefully there'll be improvement clinically, is not what has been seen in multiple clinical trials. Uh, so, so this is a, a conflict. Now, it doesn't mean that amyloid isn't an important issue. It's an important issue, but it is arising because of reasons. With familial disease, it's because of genetic mutations. And now you get Im improper processing of the amyloid precursor protein. In late onset sporadic disease, you have environmental insults and gene risks that uh, occur, but not gen genetic mutations specifically that would lead to this type of outcome. So we need to throw in here the environment, and part of the environment is infection, possibly also pollution, air pollution. Studies are showing that if you are in a polluted environment, you can have neurological changes as well. Yeah, so um, again, without knowing a lot about it, you know, so exposed ideas um, after the brain is in a, in a bad state, uh, we go in there and we find some bad things and we say, but removing them might improve it, uh, doesn't seem to work, right? So you need some sort of ex-ante um, interventions. You, you, need, you need to identify uh, what's causing it and, and prevent it from, from, from being there, right? And so, so, so Brian, you know, going to the MS uh, area, it, it's sort of the same thing, isn't it? I mean, you have a sort of infection hypothesis there too. For MS. Well, and as Brian was talking about, the organisms do appear to get through the blood-brain barrier in a specific area where, in fact, the blood-brain barrier is fenestrated. In other words, it purposefully has small holes in that barrier for neuroproteins to go in and out. And this is in the brainstem area near the third and fourth ventricle. And lo and behold, we found chlamydia pneumoniae in ependymal cells that line these areas of the third and fourth ventricle where the blood brain is fenestrated. In other words, it has holes in it. And, and also, if I could add something uh, to what Chuck was saying as well. So those, the, the uh, plaques that develop with multiple sclerosis, 
the white matter damage is occurring often around the ventricular system where you have the more of those uh, leaky areas of the blood vessel where you have in that third ventricle area and some of the fourth ventricle, as Chuck mentioned, what we call circumventricular organs, where you have fenestrated capillaries, and because they're fenestrated, material could get through easier. And then you, around the ventricles themselves, you have ependymal cells that have tight junctions so that you can't go directly into the cerebral spinal fluid, uh, at, at least at first. Eventually, though, it, that can happen, and with MS, oligoclonal bands, uh, antibodies that are being generated, that also have reactivity against chlamydia pneumonia and other organisms as well. So, so all of a sudden you find now there's a scenario that develops, but with MS, it's developing a little differently than you have it with Alzheimer's disease, even though the same organisms may be involved in both. Could be involved, yeah. So, so reading through your papers, um, I mean, obviously I don't understand that. <laughs> I understand the papers in detail, but so, so I grew up in, you know, South India, where, where infections are, all sorts of infections are endemic. And, um, and you have to obviously control this for age. Um, but we, we don't see a lot of CNS-related diseases, uh, at least, maybe I don't know all the data, but, um, you know, CNS-related diseases are very rare. In, in South India, for instance, um, and I was wondering, you know, this is this is you know, this is a place that I mean, I used to get a flu every two months, you know, as <laughs> as growing up there, uh, and so if if an external organism is responsible, like chlamydia or something like that, this is an this is an area of high um, high incidence of infections. But we don't see that translating into the CNS system. Do we have a hypothesis? Well, well, I I would offer uh, a, a hypothesis that potentially, depending on the infection coming into the body and the response of an individual, the immune system response, that it actually may control that infection to a point where it is not migrating to more selected sites in the body. And in some ways, you might be immune, becoming immunized from the organisms actually migrating elsewhere. So that's a yeah. possibility. And again, it depends on how per, a person is infected. You know, if somebody's inhaling it into the nose, all of a sudden you're going, well, you could bypass the blood-brain barrier. If you're if you're contracting it and it's not really going in that way, but it's going in, in, in your lungs or potentially through your diet, through what you're drinking or eating, uh, it may then, uh, your body is going to respond differently and it may control what's happening. So that's one, one issue. The other is, depending on where you are in the world, if you're in an area that has high prevalence of parasitic diseases, Parasites lead to a different type of immune response that actually may counteract the immune response you would get in some of these other diseases. Uh, so that, it, based on that, and we, and we know also in, in another disease, cancer, with different types of cancers, you'll get an inflammatory response 
that differs from what you get with a neurodegenerative or neuroinflammation response. Those differences yeah. actually can sort of lead to a difference in the capability of, of going on to develop the other disease. So, so it's interesting because a lot of people with Alzheimer's disease that develop it late in life, they are they are not uh, cancer prone. They don't develop cancers. Now, it could be that they're just living longer and have a better immune system and are, are, are less prone to genetic defects or effects of that versus someone that gets also cancer doesn't seem to go on to necessarily get a neurodegenerative disease. This is not 100% though in the populations, okay? Yeah. There, there are people that could get both or neither, right? So, so it's one of those issues where it's been noted though that there's some differences uh, and that inflammatory response I think is a big issue. I, I yeah. would offer two yes. additional potential explanations. One is APOE4, which is a genetic determinant, seems to be important in MS, for example, and also in Alzheimer's. And it may well be that there's a genetic difference that can account for why people don't get Alzheimer's or MS. Another explanation is that what people eat may infect or may affect, may play a role. And there are two compounds that investigators, not me or not at Vanderbilt, but investigators have published on two compounds one is taurine and the other is dimethylglycine. Taurine is found particularly in fish or mussels or meat, but the dimethylglycine is plant-based. And for example, trimethylglycine is called betaine because it was first found in beets. So there may be particular foods that protect people against certain organisms like chlamydia pneumoniae, and that may account for some of the blue zones that people have described. Chuck, I was thinking the same thing. Mickey? dietary patterns, yeah, around the world, um, because there are these blue zones, which are places that they have certain things in common, but not everything in common. So it's pretty perplexing, like, okay, um, one's in California, one's in Japan, right? What, what are the um, what are the commonalities there? And some of the things that, that have to, um, that really make me think, and I have a personal hypothesis, this is just my, my belief, is that some of the compounds we're consuming in the foods that we eat can in fact be very antimicrobial because plants, for example, or some of the spices that are consumed in India, uh, very, very- Coumarin. Yep, exactly. Potent antimicrobial properties, uh, garlic, ginger, um, chemicals contained in curry, for example. Um, and so my personal thought process is that, you know, we are in a certain sense what we eat and that if microbes end up being important, whether it's a healthy microbiome or we focus more on microbes that are pathological that actually cause trouble, uh, many compounds that are in plants 
um, polyphenols, for example, have demonstrated really nice antimicrobial activity against bugs that we know to be inflammatory and deleterious. So that would be one thought that I had, you know, around um, the possibility of fewer neurodegenerative observations, but also obviously the genetic piece of it too. There's a genetic piece of it. There is uh, so what you're saying, Nikki, is there's a kind of an epigenetics aspect of it, um, uh, and so you have, to, you have to look at the whole system. Um, so that that you know. That brings us to sort of COVID nineteen question. <laughs> so, uh, I, I wasn't going. I wasn't going there before uh, our time ended. But um, so COVID nineteen, uh, there's significant mortality differentials across the world. Um, for instance, the state that I grew up in, India, uh, in the southwestern part of India, has a mortality about twenty five percent of all the states surrounding it. And, you know, I've been sitting and looking at all this data and wondering, is, is there something there? You know, <laughs> what is causing such a huge drop in mortality? Um, and, and maybe Nikki, your hypothesis, sort of epigenetics related issues, but I wondered if there's something more to it than that. Uh, before we get there, you know, I want to ask you, Brian and Charles, you know, there are a lot of vaccine hesitancy in the world. And I don't know if we have, you know, uh, put out uh, the right information to everybody, which is, it is not just about getting COVID and getting over it. It's really about the long-term effects of COVID. And if you got one, got an infection, it's all the long-term effects that you are transmitting COVID to other people. So it's not as simple as I'm saying, you know, I'm not, I don't want to take a back vaccine. Um, there's a, there's a lot of things sort of stacked up against that from an economic and health perspective. Um, is this something that we can, we can sort of describe this to people? Brian? Well, I, I think that we, we who believe in the vaccines uh, and, and being helpful um, take the approach that um, this is something everyone should do to help prevent uh, continued spread, uh, to uh, putting our children at risk if we don't have it, putting others at risk that have immune compromised systems. We're, we have a social responsibility, I think. That's the way I've approached it. And I think others should as well. To now um, try to, to, we have something that works, let's use that. It's like eradicating smallpox, eradicating polio. You know, we, we need to have everyone on board that we need to eradicate this or this pandemic will continue and potentially other variants will arise that could even be more deadly, more communicable, et cetera, leading to indefinite periods here of constantly chasing, getting another vaccine out to deal with, with the variants. And yet at the same time, we're losing uh, people to this virus. They're dying. Uh, they're, they, and, and it goes to the long-term effects as well as what you mentioned. Um, there have been what, over 173 million that have recovered from the virus. They say recovered. 
because they didn't die. But they may have effects that we are going to see years from now that they, they now have systemic effects, cognitive effects. There are some recent reports out from the International Alzheimer meeting about uh, how the biomarkers that are being looked at in blood uh, for a number of older individuals that have had COVID, they are very similar to what you find when you have Alzheimer's disease or neurodegenerative process. So we're hoping that this doesn't lead to that, but it's suggesting to us that this virus can trigger events in our bodies that are could be long-term. You could recover. It'd be something you know where, where you can now have sequelae from this. So it's a really important issue. Yeah. Gil, you know, the thing that's truly uh, being highlighted right now with this pandemic is that, you know, a pathogen, which may not even be found in abundant quantities in the brain proper, can elicit an immune response and an inflammatory response that looks similar to what is observed in Alzheimer's disease. And we feel that this is incredibly compelling, especially in light of the fact that it's not just C. pneumoniae that has been studied over the last few decades in association with Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration. There are herpes viruses, uh, Porphyromonas gingivalis, Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme disease. And this whole idea of long-term health effect isn't one that's new. It's just one that is more recently being appreciated, like a billion dollars being poured into long COVID. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of people right now with long Lyme disease. You know, they have, uh, chronic sequelae that have developed as a result of an infection that was introduced and it hasn't been uh, clearly demonstrated whether it's a chronic infectious issue or a lingering uh, autoimmune issue, but it's definitely something that places emphasis on a different disease paradigm in a way that we should be considering, you know, chronic inflammatory diseases by deciding whether or not, path, you know, pathogens have a prominent role. Yeah, yeah. That's that's absolutely true, um, Charles. You know, so could we could we take a um, little bit of a detour into what is the mechanism by which chlamydia gets into the brain? Uh, what what do we understand from that process? I believe that chlamydia gets into the brain, as Brian was talking about, where it's carried by poly polymorphonuclear cells, because they can't kill it, or possibly by monocytes or macrophages, they can't kill it either. But it also, and I have EMs, electronic micrographs that show this, chlamydia elementary bodies stick to the outside of red cells like fleas on a dog. And they travel wherever red blood cells travel. And so I think that they can get in either carried as a Trojan horse, so to speak, by white cells, or they can get in on the backs, so to speak, of red cells. So, so they, I think they're small enough. They're small enough to do that sort of piggyback on the red blood. Yeah. Cells. Yeah. In fact, if you look at a red blood cell, uh, there are, I mean, they, they it kind of looks like a basketball with golf balls on it, stuck all over it. That's yeah. the relationship of the size. 
the red cell is the golf is the basketball, and then the golf balls are the chlamydia elementary bodies. And, and I would just add to what Chuck has said, also that if it's inhaled and and you are infecting your olfactory neuroepithelial cells, you have direct connectivity then into the olfactory bulbs of the brain, which then communicate with. Uh, the enteronal cortex, the piriform cortex, where you uh, where you're actually interpreting the sense of smell, and also the amygdala, which is now your fight and flight center, essentially emotional center. And when you go to those areas, you know you can imagine now these are the these are the the rail the um, the roads into the brain proper from the olfaction. Yeah. And once you're into those sites you can now have spread from those sites throughout all areas of the brain. But if the, the, certain diseases are involving these areas of the brain consistently, we need to look there and say, what's happening to those areas of the brain? And you need to um, examine, do you have infectious agents there? In, in many cases, you may not, but in many cases, you may. And you may have other insults that lead to that damage in those areas. And some of those insults may be coming from the blood as well. So, so now you have multiple ways actually that you could influence the functionality. Yeah. And, and, and we've, we've seen when we examine brain tissues, for instance, the amygdala is commonly damaged in many neurodegenerative diseases. It is one of those uh, areas of the brain that communicates with all other areas. It's like the thalamus, it would send out uh, so, so axons to all other areas. So these are common areas like that. That's why they're involved, actually, because uh, it's not only they're sending things out, they're receiving back as well input. So now you have uh, that type of process occurring, and, and at times it's even sequential. Uh, olfaction, the enteronal cortex, the hippocampus, then going to the frontal cortex or parietal cortex, also the brainstem involvement. And in many of these neurodegenerative diseases, we see brainstem involvement. Yeah. And the question becomes, why? Why is it there? Where, what's, what's leading to this? You know, brainstem is different than the cortex. So why are these things migrating to these areas or why are these diseases emulating from these particular sites? Yeah, so I guess the complication is that from a diagnostic perspective, we won't be able to scan the brain and identify there's a problem there at inception. We have to wait for symptoms or we have to wait for things to develop, right? Is that true or not? It's basically true, which is why I would like to focus on I'll call it lifestyles, I'll call it what we eat, as opposed to waiting to find the problem and try to deal with it and the damage is already done. Let's prevent the damage from happening. And I'll give you a perfect example. If you look at taurine, taurine is one of the most numerous amino acids in our bodies. And what's unique about taurine is that it's not put in chains, it's not put in proteins, it's not used for anything, to make anything. It's running around free in your body, in your brain. And 
it turns out that there's a reason for that. Your white cells, your polymorphonuclear cells, actually use taurine and they make an antibiotic out of it. And this is something that you can Google and you'll get papers that describe this. This is not something I'm making up. This is something I've read. And I didn't think of it. I wish I had, but I've read about it and I know it and I understand it. And what happens is the polymorphonuclear cells actually chlorinate the taurine. They make a compound known as N-chlorotaurine, which is a very potent antimicrobial agent. It's active against viruses. It's active against chlamydia. It's active against bacteria. It's active against mycobacteria. It's our body's own natural antibiotic. The body doesn't make much of it. It can make it, but it doesn't make enough, particularly if you have an infection or even worse, if you have a chronic infection, then you run out of it. Mm. And our problem is we often don't take taurine as a supplement, nor do we eat foods such as mussels that are that have a very high concentration of taurine. Yet, if you look at these blue zones, a lot of them are by the ocean and people eat seafood, which has a high concentration of taurine. Yeah. Yeah, so, so let me ask you a larger questions, uh, question. Um, uh, it's a larger question. So this autoimmune diseases that we talk about, arthritis, cancer, diabetes, are they all caused by pathogens? Fundamentally, I mean, uh, is this a cat category that doesn't exist? Fundamentally, well, there's a, a <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there there is an investigator at the University of South Florida, Florida in Tampa, who has been studying reactive arthritis and has found messenger RNA in joints from people with reactive arthritis, and these are from both chlamydia pneumoniae and chlamydia trachomatis. There are many other chlamydia out there, and I'm willing to bet that rheumatoid arthritis is caused by a yet unnamed species of chlamydia. And the reason, one of the reasons I say this is I have used the anti-chlamydial therapy to cure rheumatoid arthritis in some patients. Yeah, and Gil, to go back to your question about this concept of autoimmunity, um, there are you know a great number of researchers and clinicians practicing in a wide variety of disciplines, and hence sort of the purpose of creating this consortium that I have built, um, which really is trying to build bridges and link people together interdisciplinary to really look at this role of infection and disease. Logically speaking, I stepped back from the whole thing after spending six years studying and talking to thousands of people, and I say that, is it really sensible to think that the human body would launch an attack on itself spontaneously on such a large scale, right? The number of people that are suffering with autoimmune conditions. Um, it, it certainly, I have my own bias because I was a patient myself. 
that happened to stumble upon, you know, Chuck Stratton's research here today, and then and then Brian's research and the research of others, uh, noticing that you know pathogens could set the stage for some of the diseases I'd been diagnosed with. And I had the great fortune of actually uh, responding really robustly to antimicrobial therapy, um, placing really severe refractory asthma into remission, which is kind of unheard of, and uh, also very disturbing neurodegenerative symptoms um, into remission. And, uh, you know, I sit here well today and say that um, it's unlikely that I'm an N of one. Um, because my case is unique, yes, it's true, um, but there are, like I said, people studying this from all around the globe, and not just C. pneumoniae, people looking at Bartonella infection, people looking at Babesiosis, Toxoplasma gondii. I mean, there are pathogens that have the ability to remain chronic, elicit inflammation, and why we aren't thinking about that when we know certain chronic diseases can be caused by pathogens, like take gastric ulcers, for example, um, I mean, that, that example is one that I think the room here, you know, nods and smiles and says, yeah, that's, that's a really, um, really applicable example of Helicobacter pylori being a bacterial infection, right, that can cause an ulcer and that causes really all cases of ulcers. Um, but for over a decade, the people that were suggesting that this might be the case um, were pretty much frowned upon by the global medical community. Uh, because I think this concept of a pathogen causing a disease creates a, um, a level of discomfort for some reason, even though we know pathogens can make people sick. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, without being a scientist, autoimmune diseases, as you were saying, Nikki, seem very iffy to me all, all along. <laughs> You know, it just basically means that we haven't found a cause. Right. Um, the, the body is pretty well designed. You know, we have homeostasis happening in a lot of different situations. So it's very unlikely you have a runaway reaction uh, of your own T cells um, to kill you. Uh, it, it seems sort of counterintuitive, right? Although. Although we know that you could have T cell leukemias and lymphomas, uh, which may not have any infectious component to them, but but at times they might. We and we also know that that uh, you can have genetic problems in the body that are principally genetic, with a basis to cause now a disease entity. But typically, when we look at those genetic diseases as purely a genetic issue, or even epigenetic, they they are very small percentages of the people that are getting a particular type of disease. And even with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or some of the other neurological diseases, um, you'll find there are genetic components, uh, genetic parts of those diseases that you can define that way. It's genetic Parkinson's, it's genetic Alzheimer's, it's genetic uh, frontotemporal dementia. But those are, are very small percentages of the total populations that are getting these diseases. Even with cancer, we know uh, the papillomavirus and hep C and uh, other viruses can actually lead to cancer. Yeah. But most of them most cancers are probably, we just haven't identified it, most cancers that there's an infectious component. 
Okay, so there could be other components there that diet related, environmental, other environmental influences, etc. So what has happened here, though, is that we sort of have moved away from or, or for a long time moved away from infectious agents as being key to our health and disease because we had antibiotics and we had vaccines and we we could could get rid of some of the major scourges of our of our societies for throughout history. Now we're finding that we have these unique organisms that are, are coming at us and they are expressing themselves in ways we haven't really understood before in these chronic ways in crossover ways acting together acting individually that's what's leading i think to a vast uh, amount of morbidity and we're seeing this with covid right now look at the morbidity and mortality of covid worldwide it is now an acute issue though that's why we're focused this way that's acute what about all the chronic subclinical infections that we are facing that aren't killing us quickly or infecting us quickly, but subclinically and staying in our bodies and then expressing as we age or as something else changes uh, in our environment? So, so, Charles, so I haven't really studied this. So, what is this biogen? product that came out um, that appeared very controversial? I was at Pfizer when Adicept came out um, for Alzheimer's. Uh, what's the Biogen product's mechanism for Alzheimer's? For which now? Didn't uh, didn't um, the FDA approve something? Uh, was it Biogen or something else? Yeah, so so they approved Aducanumab, aka branded name Aduhelm, and. Uh, it removes a beta and it does so well. Um, and it's a, you know, a, probably one of the more controversial FDA decisions of its entire time, I think actually, um, for a variety of reasons. And one of the big ones is um, simply that in a very shocking sort of maneuver, the FDA decided to examine an endpoint other than clinical endpoints. So does Aduhelm remove a beta? Indeed it does. Does it uh, fundamentally impact the course of a Alzheimer's disease patient's progression and prognosis? It does not. Um, and so, so that's, that's something that um, has really had the Alzheimer's community sort of, uh, no other way to put it, but it's been, you know, kind of a wild time. Yes, it, yeah. and, and there's, there's continues to be controversy about it. So they had to pull back even instead of, you know, being able to prescribe this for six million uh, U.S. citizens that have Alzheimer's disease. They had to now focus into a multi, uh, a mild cognitive impairment and early diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. And, and really, the only reason they approved this was a claim that because it took amyloid out of the brain that it could have clinical <laughs> significance, which has not been proven at all. And, and, and that's the real problem because all these other companies now are coming into the fray saying, well, my drug does the same thing. It's been known for a long decades that some of these drugs can do this, anti-amyloid drugs without real benefit. But the FDA lowered the bar so low that now they're coming to the table saying, well, why are, isn't my drug being approved? We've shown the same thing. Now, 
the yeah. problem here is that it's not helping anybody. The pharmaceutical companies are being helped, but but patients aren't being helped. It, it is not work. It's not something that will work for individuals with the disease. And getting yeah. back to our earlier discussion about um, what I would really just make it really simple is that we have to go further upstream in the disease process, right? The amyloid beta situation is like, okay, it's been demonstrated um, by Dr. Rudy Tanzi and his group uh, that antimicrobial properties are present with A-beta. So in other words, A-beta can kill organisms, which is fascinating, and it entraps them. And A-beta has been with us for a very, very long time. So from an evolutionary perspective, it has remained with us, right? Um, so if taking it away isn't helping, um, you know, we think a logical thought process would be, okay, let's better understand why it's there in the first place. And let's figure out why the body is reacting in this way and what the triggers are and remove those by simply looking earlier in the process. And as Brian mentioned, you know, there could be a number of things that could trigger uh, damage in the brain and this olfactory route seems to be very important. But from the commercial side of things, uh, you know, I think that the, the one thing that could come out of all of this, this approval, and I shared this on social media because it was my, um, the inherent optimist in me to feel this way, is that at this point in time with no approved drugs for Alzheimer's disease, uh, in as many years as it has been, right, since the approval of Aricept, for example, and I remember I was at Pfizer during that time frame, um, the, the thing is investors, you know, don't want to inv invest in a space where they think that it's just going to be destined for failure. So to approve a drug, does it stimulate investment dollars? Does it to increase the confidence? Um, I think it hurts the confidence in the FDA to approve a medication that didn't have a significant benefit for patients. And two of the FDA advisors stepped down and resigned as a result of it. However, does it set the stage to look at other endpoints and to validate other uh, thought processes that are strongly associated with the disease? Because at this point you can say A-beta is associated with Alzheimer's disease, right? It's there. We know that it's, a, uh, that it's clearly a factor um, but could potentially other biomarkers serve as a surrogate for other treatments that may eventually help, perhaps. Um, so, you know, that's my my personal hope is that, um, you know, we can see some increased investments in innovative strategies that are more upstream, that are not just focused on removing pathology, and that, you know, we can perhaps see some innovative, uh, you know, innovative approaches emerge out of this controversy. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Nikki. You know, uh, when I left Pfizer, I I remember thinking that, or maybe I, I was told this. I wasn't a scientist. I was a finance guy. Um, I was told that inflammation is the cause of most diseases. Um, so I want I want to get the the perspective of both of you, Brian and Charles. So, you know, the idea was if you see inflammation, stop it and then things will get better. Um, my sense is that inflammation is, is a body trying to do something that, you know, it's trying to handle in some way. Brian, do, do, you, do, you, have a, do yeah. you have an opinion on this? Well, well inflammation ha is a double-edged sword. 
inflammation is required if you have damage in the body to help stimulate the initial repair process. It, it goes hand in hand. You have inflammation so that you can get repair. But if inflammation goes beyond an acute process, meaning if it goes beyond 24, 48, or 72 hours, and now it is maintained in the body, what inflammation does, it creates damage. It creates cellular damage. That, and at times, it is irreparable. Okay, It leads to now dysfunction. So that's the double-edged sword. It is required for healing the body, helping the body deal with insult. But if, if it goes beyond, that's where we, we run into major problems. And, and that's what is being maintained in many of these diseases where inflammation is being looked at as being the, the element leading to dysfunction. So, Charles, is, is this sort of a runaway process that we are unable to manage? You have to figure out why there's inflammation. If you twist your ankle, your ankle tissue will be inflamed. It'll swell. It'll hurt. And as Brian says, three or four days with ice initially, heat after, your ankle will be fine. If you go out in the sun and lay out too long, then your body can get burned. Your skin, skin can get burned. And that'll be inflamed. You may even have blisters. Skin will get red. So you have to figure out what's causing the inflammation. If you have pneumococcal pneumonia, your lungs will be inflamed. But no one takes aspirin for that or Tylenol for that. They want penicillin to get rid of the pneumococcal pathogen that caused the inflammation. So. You always want to think if infl inflammation is a sign, it's telling you something's happened. And what you have to then ask is, okay, why is my ankle inflamed? It's, if you twisted it, it's not going to be an infection and you don't want to take penicillin. So you've got to figure out why the inflammation. And on occasion, the answer is going to be a known infection and what we're trying to get people to think about is okay how about when there is an unknown infection that you haven't thought about yeah right or a stealth pathogen right chuck one that kind of evades the traditional detection methods that is low below the radar that can cause sort of the slow growing low-grade chronic inflammation over many decades so it's a symptom. It's a symptom that tells you something is wrong. By treating the symptom, we're not going to cure the disease. So just taking ibuprofen right. may not be sufficient right. for us. <laughs> it's a symptom when you feel it. And it's yeah. a sign when your ankle swells and you can see it. So it's both a symptom and a sign. Yeah, right. and indeed, um, during the proceedings at the GI conference, and forgive me, I don't remember the year, Chuck and Brian, you might, when uh, Barry Marshall and others were arguing for the value of uh, treating Helicobacter pylori for ulcers, one of the proponents of Helicobacter pylori stood up and said to any physician in the room, would you treat a urinary tract or bladder infection by just giving the patient pyridium? 
and not treating the infection. And everyone, of course, is shaking their head no. And so their point was, why would we treat stomach ulcers and gastritis with a known infection with you know, uh, H2 blockers or antacids. It doesn't make a great deal of sense because you're not getting at the root cause. Or uh, before that, cream. Yeah. I remember when people, when I was in medical school, right. one of the treatments for peptic ulcer was drinking cream. Yeah. And you know, Gil, I remember being at Pfizer, 22 years old, walking into a uh, primary care physician's office that I was about to go in and talk about arthritis actually with that individual and him saying to me, hey, did you know stomach ulcers are caused by a bacterial infection? And I remember going, huh. And uh, it was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. And, uh, you know, to think, you know, that that was some kind of odd foreshadowing for me <laughs> at the time. Um, you know, just the, the fact uh, for me as I stand back and I'm like you, you know, I don't have a formal scientific training. I, I, I read on my own. The thought process is like, man, this is so easy. It's, uh, you know, as people have even said at times, well, oh, wouldn't it be nice if the answer was that simple, that a pathogen could cause something like Alzheimer's or MS or asthma for that matter? And I think there's a tendency for human beings to love complexity, uh, maybe a little too much at times. Yeah, so so I'm I'm on to kill all the bacteria and viruses. We'll be fine. <laughs> the ones that are pathogenic. <laughs> <laughs> At least those. Yeah. Yeah, there's so, a lot. Right. right. There, you know, there's another parallel here with the Helicobacter pylori story, and that is that in the 1940s, the late 1940s, there were people treating ulcers with antibiotics. And the people were getting better, and yet, yet it dropped off the scene as if it didn't count, as if it didn't matter. And for beyond, like almost 30 years after that, it came back again to, oh, we should be looking at this as an infectious process. Well, we're facing the same thing here in these neurological issues that we've identified for, it's been decades a number of different infectious agents. And now we've even tried to use some level of therapeutic approaches at times, but because these agents and these diseases are so even more complex, we haven't been able to get the therapeutics to a point where we have enough clinical trials to, give, to make a difference and, and to really approach this the way we should be. Yeah, so this cytokine storm that people talk about, is, is inflammation sort of a proxy for that, you know, sort of a runaway process that you would deal with in, in COVID and elsewhere? Well, cytokine storm is your immune system's response, and it is one of the things that causes inflammation. It's your immune system responding often to an infection, and it does among other things, your body re responds by producing, or the white cells are producing cytokines. Other cells can produce them as well. It, it's something that happens in septic shock and in, in sepsis. You're getting cytokine storms in addition to other problems happening, but it's part of the process. Uh, the multi-system inflammatory process in children that's been seen it's, it's a cytokine storm that's really leading to the whole body responding, as Chuck was saying. 
Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with sort of a COVID-19 thought uh, from all three of you. Um, you know, people say, well, it's, it's like a flu, you'll get over it. Um, and so you don't need a vaccination. Uh, but it's a larger story, isn't it? I mean, we don't really know the long-term effects of COVID. Um, and if you transmit COVID, then, you know, you, you are getting other people into trouble. And so, at least on the surface, without being a scientist, it appears that vaccination is a dominant strategy that everybody should follow. Um, Charles, I'll start with you. So, what, what are your thoughts on that? So, theoretically, I have a problem with the natural coronavirus infections, because it's well known that if you are infected with any of the four circulating coronaviruses that are out there that cause the common cold, that you will have an immune response to the one you get infected with that will last about four to six months. It'll protect you from getting that one again for four to six months. It won't protect you from getting any of the other three, but it will protect you from getting the same one you just got. Like for about six months, you said. For about yeah, six months. Six months. Yeah. And if you don't get a lasting immunity from natural infection, although one can argue the natural infection is confined to the upper respiratory tract where there's IgA and other immune responses, but I suspect that if that's the natural duration of COVID immunity or coronavirus immunity, what we'll eventually see is a need for a yearly vaccination or a yearly booster, like kind of like, like what we do with influenza vaccine that will boost our immune system. And so, and it's really, neutralizing antibodies plus T cells and B cells and, you know, CD4, CD8 cells that work together to deal with it. But I think that we may end up getting a shot every fall for the coronaviruses, just like we do for influenza. Yeah. And so that's a little bit problematic in the sense that I think um, influenza uh, uh, vaccine short compliance in the U.S. and and uh, EU is more like 40 to 50 percent, uh, but it's like 2 percent in India. I don't know what it is in China. And so if you're into a, a regime where you need to have yearly coronavirus shots, I don't know if developing countries have the infrastructure in place to do that. That's right. And the what, what has happened with the other four circulating coronaviruses is that they have evolved to where they're only producing colds, although there are outbreaks. There's one published from Canada in a nursing home in I think 2006 is when it was published, but there were an 8% mortality among the 100 people who were in the nursing home. 
versus zero mortality against the 100 or so people that were taking care of these patients. So again, whether it's another type of coronavirus that has been circulating for decades, if you are older and have other health problems, they can be fatal. Whereas if you are a young, young, healthy caregiver, you'll get a cold and that's all. So. Yes, so Brian, from a policy perspective, given everything that we know today, what would you suggest? I, I'm talking about sort of a WHO policy, you know, not just the US policy. So, so what would you suggest from a kind of a worldwide policy perspective? Well, well, I think, obviously, as a scientist, I, I think that the science has to lead the way. It, the coronavirus issue has been so politicized throughout not only the states, but throughout the world as well, that the, the science has to come to the fore and say, OK, we need to. I, I think if we compared it more to like a smallpox type of issue, that this is like our modern day smallpox, this is going to keep going. And there's no guarantee that if you get this, you're going to recover. There are plenty of people that think they're perfectly healthy. They get it and they're dying. Uh, so I don't, there's the nonchalance and arrogance, I think that there's uh, probably billions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions around the planet that think that this is not as bad as it's been made out to be. But I, I think we still have to go back to what does science tell us here? If we're going to get through this pandemic, which we are not close to getting through at this point in time, uh, we need to now have that that worldview of the governments need to come together and say, look, we need to now address this with our populations in a way that's consistent. Stop, take the politics out, take the uh, what you know, take the the disinformation away, push it aside. What is the information? And be honest about the information. For instance, if, if you're talking about the J&J &J vaccine and there are people that have had adverse events to that, very small percentage, but have had gain by racing from, from that. Well, like the flu vaccine also can suffer from that type of adverse event. It's very rare and it happens, yes. But it doesn't mean that you should not get the vaccine that could potentially save your life. So, so we need that consistent message from the world health and, and you know, focusing it that way and say, you know, look, this is a smallpox issue. This is a polio issue. This is something that needs to be eradicated. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the world of big data, we are increasingly getting closer to predicting who is more likely to have an adverse effect. Um, we say we are increasingly getting closer, but <laughs> we don't seem to have implemented anything. Uh, but but there is a lot of technology and knowledge and information that allows us to do this more systematically. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Nikki, so so you have the last word here. So. What, what is your sense of where we are in the COVID cycle today? What, what is going to happen? So, so Charles says, you know, every six months, 
every one year you have to take a booster shot, maybe a cocktail or vaccine, so to speak. The developing world is definitely not set up for that. The 2% compliance for influenza vaccine, you're not going to get there. So, you know, if you have 2.5 billion people in, in China and India not taking vaccines, it doesn't really matter what the US and EU do. Um, these guys are going to bring up the next coronavirus in 2021 and 2022. So, so, so what is the WHO policy? I mean, how do we tackle this sort of a worldwide pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the one thing we've seen with the pandemic that I would love to tear out of this book and bring it over to the Chronic Disease Journal for a horrible pandemic-level disease like Alzheimer's, right? Which, by the time uh, my kids are old enough for it to be a problem, the statistic is looking like it'll be one in two of them will die not remembering you know, who their family members are. Um, is just this worldwide coordination, um, the speed and sense of urgency that we have applied to the situation, albeit imperfect, right? We haven't figured out how to um, get things, uh, get the vaccines to disproportionate to, you know, populations that, that don't have access, and that's a huge issue. So I think going forward, commercially, we will need treatment strategies um, that will actually interrupt the virus from replicating. I mean, I know a, a great number of companies are working on things like this. Um, and then we'll also obviously need, um, you know, we'll need more, more vaccination approaches. And I believe there are also, you know, oral vaccine therapies. Am I correct, Chuck, about that? Have you heard yeah, about they're, they're being developed. Um, and then other methodologies being employed, like intranasal uh, treatment approaches or vaccine approaches. So I think everyone is innovating around COVID at a warp speed. Um, we need to use what we've learned in this and the collaborative approach that's been taken and even the interdisciplinary approach that's been taken. We have people that got involved in COVID, um, for example, a Castleman disease organization out of uh, UPenn you know, started applying their methodology to examining that rare disease, uh, you know, based on a physician's own survival story, a pen physician, to look at COVID and to start um, really analyzing what agents could be repurposed that may interrupt the virus from replicating. So I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see us take that thought process, that sense of urgency, and that collaborative spirit over to our other problems like Alzheimer's disease, for example, or MS, um, you know, diseases that, that uh, you know, could also potentially have infectious involvement. But, um, but clearly there's much work to be done, right? And, um, you know, and certainly uh, disparities around the world are a huge issue. Yeah, remember that smallpox was eradicated by vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a hot potato question, and anybody can answer this. So... Um, when you invent a new product, Pfizer and Moderna, and it requires minus 100 degrees Celsius for distribution, um, that is a product that's going to only serve a small percentage of the population um, because we just don't have the logistics and infrastructure to, do, to deliver minus 100 degrees Celsius product for 8.4 billion people. And so in a worldwide shock, uh, like the COVID-19 pandemic, is such a product um, that useful? I mean, you know, we have 100, 
I don't know what the number is, but something like 200 different Delta variants coming out of India. Uh, I don't know what the heck China is doing. We have no numbers on them. Um, so if you have, you know, 3 billion people out there still picking up COVID, it doesn't really matter if Germany and New Jersey are vaccinated. It's like the shoulders of giants quote, right? Is that in science, one thing builds upon another. And so this mRNA success that, that occurred with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines lays the groundwork for, and I was just talking to our colleague Wilmore Webley about it the other day, vaccines against other really deleterious pathogens leveraging this approach, right? So taking this technology and then utilizing it to improve humanity in ways that we could never have anticipated before the pandemic happened. And so, you know, absolutely, Gil, you know, that's, we need, we need people to continue developing things that don't need to be shipped at, you know, minus 2 billion degrees and, you know, in a special container and, you know, under these right circumstances of a full moon. No, and I'm kidding, but, you know, it needs to be something that is uh, more, more logistically feasible, right? And, and it's- The success yeah. of the smallpox vaccine was due to two things a vaccine that did not need to be refrigerated and a two-pronged needle that the Russians invented that you could dip into this vaccine and jab the skin multiple times and they could go to Africa, they could go to India, they could go all over the world and they didn't need to refrigerate it. They didn't need to have syringes, they just need to have these little two-pronged needles, and it's just a matter of the details. Yeah, the other the other issue, too, is that now we're, the companies are so focused on making a lot of money with the vaccines and what they're doing, they need to be sharing the information of how they're actually making the vaccines so that, that many companies could make vaccines that could be used this way or developed this way, where you don't need to have the uh, refrigeration for a long period of time, where it could be packaged in a liposome that could be, you know, stable at room temperature. So that so that this is now and, and basically our governments could guarantee that those companies could be paid for what they're doing and for distribution, et cetera, and 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 sort of take it out of the hands of the the free market, we want to say it's sort of anti-capitalism, but in a way we need to have that. We need to, that's where the world health could also help. I think in in globalizing the approach uh, that would be best for all populations. Well, and also Brian, too, to your point, it could be um, some of the strategies that you know have been taken to incentivize antibiotic developers to bring new antimicrobials to market that have been put in place like the GAIN Act and various incentives for companies that, that help enhance their profitability in a struggling space, you know, we could potentially devise creative ways of incentivizing more collaboration and sharing, to your point, you know, which would preserve people's ability to make money that keeps the machine running, you know, to continue to do the innovative things, right, to incentivize innovation, but at the same time, you know, makes... Um, makes technology more available to others so that we could begin serving some of these underserved populations. Yeah, it, it could be controversial, Brian. Um, yeah. I, I'm a complete free market capitalist. 
so, 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 so I have to say that um, any ex post regulation, like the Biden administration was trying to do, to say we need to break the patterns that you know Germany and France others have objected to, I think that was the right decision. If we do that, the real question is when the when COVID twenty twenty five come along. Is Pfizer going to put $500 million at risk, knowing that one, once they find it, they're going to break the patent? I doubt it. Yeah, no, I, uh, well, I would agree with that also, that they, they probably won't. Uh, as far as having patent rights, I, I think you still have to maintain that to some extent. But I, but I think there has to be that compromise when you have a, when you have a pandemic occurring where where your global population is at risk. I mean, we're talking about humanity here, and that to me translates to something that has to be much more of a of a different type of focus versus the the different markets that we're talking about. And and you know, the, and I understand the need to make money, having capitalism. I I am an advocate for that too, but it seems like we need to have that compromised area. Yeah, I mean, the, the right decision would be from an economic perspective, if, for example, I don't want to pick on Pfizer, but let's say Pfizer put $500 million at risk to find the, the vaccine, they, their shareholders would expect a return on that high-risk investment. Um, then society can fund that, fund that return. You know, it, the, the right decision would be for... India and China and the United States and Germany to buy the vaccines uh, at the prices that would have the right returns for Pfizer shareholders. Uh, I, I have no conflict of interest here, by the way. I'm, I, don't, I don't know any Pfizer stock. Uh, but but I, I'm just looking forward and saying, unless you get uh, innovation and free market capitalism to work, when, the, when we get the next shock, if companies start to expect that, you know, after we invest a lot of money, then the governments are going to come down on them, I think we will have less of a probability that we're going to find the right medicines. Yeah, and, and to bring it back to, again, you know, um, the, the benefit to everything that has occurred, um, you know, and, and obviously we've all felt this pandemic globally, right? It's, it's been an incredibly unprecedented time that word keeps flying around, but it's true. The thing is, is that, you know, pathogens are constantly evolving um, and, you know, we are going to face this problem at some point or the other and in some form or fashion. And this pandemic hopefully will leave us more prepared from all of these perspectives, from the development perspective, from, you know, hopefully a preparedness perspective and leaving us hopefully with intellectual property and innovation that puts us in a better position, you know, the next time something like this happens, um, you know, where we're, where we're not completely blindsided. And hopefully, yeah, there is some sort of way to balance out, you know, that fine balancing act between ethics and, and economics, because that is really ultimately what we're talking about, right? And what we arrived at anyway, from where we began. But, uh, but, but all yeah, of it is exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's a good learning uh, lesson um, for all of us. 
uh, and this is not going to be the last one, I think. Uh, so this is a real, real lesson. Um, this is sort of, a, um, I don't know what the right term is, but uh, it's sort of the first iteration. Um, and I think we're going to get this over and over again. And so, so, so the question is, do we have the right platforms to, to, to tackle the next one? Um, it appears that we have done quite a, quite a nice um, innovation to get an RNA sort of platform to counteract this, right? And then maybe, so, you know, it, it seems like from the perspective of some of the folks that we work with as a, as a consortium that this pandemic will help shed light on the role that pathogens play in chronic diseases too. So we think the issue is bigger than just one microorganism uh, alone or the impact that that organism has acutely. It's this issue of, you know, can pathogens elicit the, you know, set the stage for or by, you know, either a hit and run approach or by becoming chronic, um, can they be contributing to chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, asthma, MS, others? Yeah, that's exactly right, Nikki. So what we haven't computed is sort of a disease burden. The, the, the disease burden is not just getting over COVID. It, it is really sort of the 10, 15, 20 year cycle of what is going to happen. Um, and that appears to be quite uh, daunting uh, in many ways, right? Charles, uh, do you have a view on this? Again, I think that Yes, this will happen. And one of the things that we can do is to learn how to help our body fight these infections. And yeah. immunization is one way, but another way, for example, is your diet and your lifestyle. I think those are also important. Yeah, healthcare companies are not that interested in prevention, Charles. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> they won't make a lot of money from prevention. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great. Um, thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank I you, pleasure. Gil. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. This was Thank fun. You. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.